Well, this morning I'd like to ask you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. We're going to be concluding Jesus' Sermon on the Mount this morning. And Jesus' conclusion isn't necessarily like most conclusions that you hear in sermons. In fact, as he begins to come to the end of this Sermon on the Mount, he actually closes with really four illustrations. But the master teacher that Jesus is, is that in his conclusion, he, live, he leaves you with no other choice. You, you have one of two options, basically, so make your choice wisely. And that's what any good preacher or teacher should always do, is that when begins to conclude the message, well, okay, so we've looked at this great passage, so what, right? So what? Well, Jesus gets to his so what in his conclusion by not tying up his sermon at three points in a poem or three points in a few words of a song, but he actually preaches his sermon, comes to his conclusion, and leaves us with a warning. But as we've been going through Matthew chapter 5, we've seen many incredible truths. I actually looked back, um, and we've actually been in the Sermon on the Mount since February. So it's been a while that we've been looking at this Sermon on the Mount. And like I said before, it's kind of been a, a sermon series within a sermon series. We're looking through the book of Matthew as a whole, but this Sermon on the Mount has taken quite a bit of time, even though some of you are probably thinking, well... Probably just took Jesus an afternoon to preach it, so why are you taking months to preach on it? But there's so much here to dig out and to show. We begin in Matthew chapter 5, in the beginning, you remember, with the Beatitudes, where Jesus tells us who we are as his blessed disciples. And as his blessed disciples, you remember that he moved into the fact that we are to be salt and light into the world, in the world. That as, as lights, we're to be lights of the gospel. Displaying Christ and preaching his gospel as we continue through our lives. But not only that, that we're supposed to be salt as well. So we find the rot. We find the rot in our communities, and our society. And as salt, we press ourselves against it in order to preserve the rot from going any further. So we're to be salt and light into the world. And then Jesus begins moving into the fact that he has come not to abolish the law. He's not the new guy on the scene saying, oh, all that old law stuff, we're getting rid of it. No, he actually comes and says, I'm not going to abolish the law, but I'm actually coming to fulfill the law. That none of it is going to pass away. That I am the fulfillment of it. So then he begins, as we saw, and took a lot of time in the sixth contrast there in Matthew chapter 5. Remember, we looked at anger. We looked at lust. We looked at Jesus' view of divorce. We looked at oaths and retaliation. We saw that we're to love our enemies. And then as we came into chapter 6, Jesus began continuing through with a lot of ethical teaching. But He preached about giving to the needy. Being aware, of, being aware of being a hypocrite when you give to the needy. That when you give, that you don't do it in a, in a proud or a haughty way. He taught us how to pray. And he said that when we pray, we're not to pray in a hearty or a proud way. He said that when we fast, and he says when we fast, so he expects that this is something his disciples are going to do. When we fast, that we don't make ourselves look gloomy like the hypocrites. You remember? Then he taught us to not lay up our treasures on earth, but to lay up our treasures in heaven. He taught us to not be anxious. Last week we saw Jesus command us and 
about our judging and that when we go to judge somebody, we're not to go to somebody with a, a beam in our own eye, but that we're not to be hypocritical when we go and discuss somebody's sin with them. Even if somebody does have a speck in our eye, we're to make sure that we have dealt with our own log first. That we've dealt with our sin before we go and address another brother's sin. Otherwise, we are being hypocritical. And then Jesus rounded out in chapter 7, verse 12, with the golden rule, which is essentially love your neighbor as yourself. When you distill the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. And so as Jesus begins moving to his conclusion this morning, we're going to see a strong warning from him. Look there in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name. And do mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears his words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we pray this morning that you will add your blessing to the preaching and the reading of it. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. In the 1990s, thanks to some uh, big-name companies like Pillsbury, they began to uh, begin buying out a lot of smaller uh, companies that had a specific focus. These large companies began to realize that Mexican food was really catching on in America. So Pillsbury, again, and a lot of these other companies were buying out these smaller companies in order to um, really focus on pressing Mexican food into the American culture. Of course, Taco Bell had been around for a few decades already, but they were really starting to sense that the Americans were really going for this Mexican food. And I remember that in the 1990s, a lot of my friends were really starting to get into Mexican food. I wasn't really into it, but burritos and tacos and all of that... um, began to become cravings to the normal American people. It it began to be on our tables a whole lot more than it used to be. Glorious restaurants like Chipotle and Kidoba were beginning in the 1990s. So needless to say, Mexican food began to really hit hit a spike in that 
um, time period of the 90s. Yet one executive in the food industry said that the Mexican food that we eat is actually a mild version. That it's actually quite cooled down. A, a lot of the spice has been pulled from it. A lot of the kick has been taken out of it in order to suit the American palate that usually hasn't been accustomed to quite so spicy or hot food. So what we've been left with when we eat our Mexican food is not necessarily authentic Mexican, but it is a cooled down version, a, a tasty version without the kick. And you know, if we're careful, the same thing can happen and has happened with the doctrine of the church. That there are no doubt doctrines that the church has historically held throughout her history that does not taste good to the 21st century American palate. And one of those doctrines that we're going to be looking at this morning is the doctrine of hell. The doctrine of hell is one of those doctrines that the church has been spitting out of her mouth and unbelievers, they find it completely distasteful. So in an effort to be relevant, what the church has really tried to do is, is pull hell and, and other things like we'll look at today, like the exclusivity of Christ and that Christ is the only way to God. We've, we've pulled these things out of our theology in order to become more relevant to our culture, to present a, a doctrine that is more acceptable to our culture. And so we've taken these things out altogether. And so now since the church is messed up on hell, the world is messed up on hell. In fact, when, you in, when you're in your normal conversations with people that don't profess to know and love Christ, you can see that we've trivialized hell. Hell has become a swear word, right? What the hell? What the heaven doesn't make sense, but what the hell somehow does. We've turned it into a swear word. When I was a kid, well, I, I knew I wasn't allowed to say that word, so I said H-E double hockey sticks. We've completely trivialized hell. Whenever we are even going through something difficult, we say, well, I'm going through hell. We talk to the average American, and they believe that hell is simply going to be one big party. There's drinks, and there's pool, and all of their friends, and it's going to be one eternal Party. Some of you can already hear the opening lick of ACDC playing in your mind, right? Living easy, loving free, season ticket on a highway ride. Sorry, this is out of my, I gotta read the lyrics, I don't, I don't know that. Out of my age bracket. Living easy, right? Loving free, season ticket on a one-way ride. Asking nothing, leave me be. Taking everything in my stride. Don't need reason, don't need rhyme. That's obvious. Ain't nothing I'd rather do. Going down party time. My friends are gonna be there too. I'm on the highway to hell. And the thousands and thousands of people stand at the concerts and they sing, I'm on a highway to hell. But my friends, the doctrine of hell is important and significant because it is explicitly tied and explicitly linked with the gospel. So you disregard the gospel, that's going to simply swing open the wide gate that Jesus begins to talk about in this morning's passage. To disregard the gospel is to get on that easy road that leads to destruction, Jesus says. So we end really with the ethical teachings here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, again, the golden rule. But now he's going into his conclusion. He's going into his warning. He's going to warn us against the dangers that, lie, that, that await us if we do not make the proper choice. Look again in verse 13. 
Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who few find it are few. So you see here, Jesus brings out these two different gates. There's a, a wide gate and there is a narrow gate. The narrow gate, he says that the way is hard. So if you're going to walk through this narrow gate, the way is going to be hard. But he says that it leads to life. So yes, the the gate is narrow, the way is hard, but the great thing about it is that it will lead to life. But the sobering reminder that Jesus gives us is that only a few will enter by it. Only a few are going to go through this narrow gate in contrast to the wide gate. So there's this wide gate, and, and if you go through the wide gate, the way is going to be easy. And that way, it's, it's an easy way, and it's going to lead to destruction. And another sobering reminder is that many enter this gate. So if you want to walk through the wide gate, man, the way is going to be easy. Life is going to be fine. It's not going to be as difficult as being on the hard way that Jesus says. But many enter. It is sobering. So the narrow gate is sobering because only a few will enter it. The wide gate is sobering because many are going to enter it. And obviously what Jesus has in mind here is not simply some sort of earthly understanding, just in a little earthly bubble, but he is talking and referencing eternity. That there is a narrow gate that leads to eternity with God. And there is a wide gate that leads to separation. There wide gate that leads to hell. So Jesus opens up in verse 13 with a very simple imperative. Enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. But have you stopped to consider or have you ever thought through this passage a little bit and wondered who or what the narrow gate is? Okay, if there's a narrow gate and I'm supposed to walk through this narrow gate, where do I find it? Jesus himself is the gate. The way that's hard. How, okay, if I need to get on the way that's hard, that leads to life. Where do I find it? Christ himself is the way. And the life that these lead to is Christ himself. You see in John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus calls himself the door, right? He says, I am the door, or I am the gate, or I am the entrance. John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man, no man comes to the Father unless he comes through me, the exclusivity of Jesus, the exclusivity of Christ, that he is the one who is the narrow gate, that he is the hard way, that he is the life that all of this leads to. But you talk to the average American and you interact in an evangelistic type way with them and they're going to immediately think that this is not fair. That it's not fair for Jesus to be the only way. Most people are completely repulsed by the idea that Jesus could be the only way to God. And again, you have these conversations and you soon begin to see and you pick it up easily that the culture has completely embraced the idea that what is right for you is right for you and what is right for me is right for me. And the only thing that you can say that is wrong is to tell me that I am wrong. That's the only time when you can be wrong, is when you tell somebody else that they're wrong. We've completely embraced that idea. What is right for you is right for you. What is right for me is right for me. But Jesus says otherwise. The gate is narrow. The way is hard. 
Only a few are going to find it, but it leads to life. But in contrast, we have the wide gate, the wide gate that leads to destruction. A lot of times I find myself wondering, why are there so many different ideas about God? Why are there so many different thoughts and understandings or philosophies or ideologies or religious beliefs or, or whatever? Why is there so much of that? Because the gate is wide. The gate is so wide. And in the end, there's destruction in store for all of those who have walked through this wide gate, like, like dead fish, like a bunch of dead fish, just floating downstream. The person who is on the easy way, who has walked through the wide gate, will head to destruction. So here's a real general warning for all. If you have not entered by the narrow gate, then you will not be with Christ. So I ask you, have you entered by the narrow gate? Have you entered by the narrow gate who is Jesus Christ? Are you on the hard road? Will you spend your eternal life with him? But Jesus continues his warning in verse 15 concerning false prophets or false trees, um, which makes sense because when you think of a false prophet, well, what does a false prophet do? They, they spend their time dragging as many people as they can onto the wide gate. Look down in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. So beware of these guys. They, they look like sheep. They, they may sound like sheep, but they are not sheep. In fact, they're the complete opposite of sheep. They're predators. So on the inside, they are ravenous, ferocious Wolves. One thing that you can note that the last few authors of the New Testament, uh, Peter, Jude, and John, all of them warn us about false prophets. All of them warn us about false teachers. So Jesus is calling us to be shrewd in our judgment. Like we looked at last week, where it says, judge not lest you be judged. And we kind of just kind of look at that one verse and say, okay, well, I can't judge anybody. No, Jesus doesn't want us to be simpletons. He wants us to be able to wisely assess people, to make proper judgments. So Jesus is calling us to be shrewd, to make wise judgment calls on if somebody is a false prophet or not. And he tells us how we can recognize them. Because it's going to be difficult to recognize a false prophet. Because they come in and they, you know, you remember like Jacob and and Esau, remember when Jacob puts on the donkey you know, fur and makes himself kind of feel like Esau, puts on his clothes, makes himself smell like Esau. This is what a false prophet does. He comes in, he puts on sheep's clothing, he looks like us. Maybe in the beginning he might sound a little bit like us, but then as you begin to analyze and watch him, you begin to see that actually he is not bearing good fruit, he is bearing bad fruit. And you see that in verse 16 and verse 20. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. So what is their fruit? Their fruit is the doctrine that they preach. Their, their fruit is the doctrine that they live. You Look at verse 17. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So a diseased tree is going to bear bad fruit, but a healthy tree is going to bear good fruit. 
A false prophet or a false teacher is always going to bear bad fruit. So as you analyze them, as you look at them and watch what they're saying and listen to their doctrine and watch their life and watch how they live out the doctrine that they preach, you will see if they are a good tree or if they are a bad tree. And if they are a bad tree, they will be hewn down and they will be cast into the fire with all of those that they have led astray. So the people of the kingdom of God enter by the narrow gate. We enter the kingdom not through a huge, gaping, wide door, but a narrow gate, a narrow door. So be on your mark, be, be warned, beware of false prophets, beware of bad, evil, rotten trees. And third, be sure that you are a disciple of Christ. There are two claims that are going to be made here in this third section And Jesus wants us to be sure that we are disciples of Christ. There is a third warning here. Look down in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus brings up here two claims. Those who say, Lord, Lord, and who will not, and will not, enter, or those who, those who say, Lord, Lord, and who will not enter the kingdom are those who are not true disciples. That they're making the claim that they're a proper disciple, a true disciple, but in fact that they are not. He continues warning us about these. So, So any of us who are here this morning, maybe you've checked out up in these first few minutes of the sermon. If you've checked out, come back in here. Because he is addressing people who truly believe that they are disciples. Who truly believe that they have followed Christ. And on that day, they're standing before Christ and they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do this in your name? They truly believe that they trust and believe in Jesus. But he's going to look at them and say, get away from me. You see, in the last part, where we looked at the false trees, the false prophets, they know they're not. They know they're not one of us. They know they're not a sheep. That's why they've got to put on the sheep's clothing. But now he's talking to people who truly believe that they are sheep. Who truly believe that they have walked through the narrow gate. But they've actually walked through the wide gate. So this isn't meant to scare you. This isn't to cause you some sort of doubt and to go in some sort of months of questioning if you're a Christian or not. But it is a calling for you to analyze your life. Anytime analyzing your true discipleship or not is not wasted time. To truly be sure, to truly check, to truly watch your life, to ask other people's input. How am I living? Am I living as a true disciple? Do I truly believe God? Do I truly believe in Christ? It would be an absolute shame for us to hear the gospel preached week by week by week. And then to stand before Christ on that day and Him to tell us, depart from me, I don't even know you. Could there be any more horrific words than that from the mouth of Jesus looking at you and saying, I never knew you. David Platt says it's very possible for one person to assent to certain intellectual truths about Jesus and even participate in various church practices completely apart from the supernatural regeneration of the heart. 
In other words, it's completely possible for us to believe in all or say we believe in all of this and to even be here all the time and to do certain religious things and to never know Christ, to never have a true regeneration or a conversion of the heart. Where on judgment day we say, well, Lord, Lord, I, I went to church. I, I had stellar church attendance. I got baptized. I partook of communion every time it was offered. I even donated my time to helping around the building. I, I gave money to the church. Man, I even cast out a demon one time in Windsor somewhere. I prophesied. I taught God's word. I was a pastor for 30 years. I did mighty works in your name. So Lord, obviously, I must be a Christian. And Jesus looks and says, I don't even know you. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41 is even more sobering when Jesus says, Depart from me, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for devil, the devil and his angels. So again, I take Jesus' warning here and I warn you, as Peter also does in chapter 1 of his second epistle, to make every effort to confirm your calling and your election. Be sure that you have truly trusted in Jesus Christ. There is nothing more, nothing better you can do than to take time this afternoon and look at your life. Again, asking your spouse, asking your family, do you see Christ in me? Take the time to do this. Take the time to confirm your calling and election. Don't look to your Christian upbringing or your good Christian deeds. Do you notice what the part of these verses that is bad, it's the, it's the pronoun we. Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't I do this? Didn't I do this? Didn't I do this in your name? No, a true disciple comes to Jesus and says, it's nothing that I have done, but it's everything that you have done on my behalf. That's what a true disciple will say to Christ on that day. Lord, Lord, I am as guilty as I can be. I deserve hell, but because of what you have done on my behalf, I stand before you saying it's all because of you. It has nothing to do with what I have done, but all according to your mercy. Are you, a, are you a genuine disciple of Christ? Analyze yourself. Be sure of it. So there are two gates. There's a narrow gate and there is a wide gate. There are two trees. There is a good tree that bears good fruit. There is a bad tree that bears bad fruit. There are two disciples or there are two claims that are made. There is a true disciple that will dwell with Christ forever. But there is a false disciple that will be told to depart from Christ. And that Christ never knew him But lastly, look, there are two foundations. There is a firm foundation. There is a soft foundation. Or there is a wise man. And there is a foolish man. So the wise man, he builds his house on a firm foundation. He builds his house upon the rock. And the rains came down. And the floods came up. And the rains came down, and the floods came up. You know the song. And the rains came down, and the floods came up, and the house on the rock stood what? Firm. And then there was the other guy, the foolish guy, and he built his house upon the sand. And the rains came down, and the floods came up. The rains came down, floods came up. And the house on the sand went splat, bang, crashed. Jesus says, and great was the fall of it. So the wise man, he built his house upon a firm foundation. And the foolish man comes and he builds his house upon a soft foundation. 
And the outcome of these two houses is completely separate. Jesus says that hearing his words in this sermon and doing them is like building your house upon a rock, on a firm foundation, giving you the confidence and the satisfaction, knowing that what you've built your life upon in your obedience to Christ cannot be destroyed. It cannot be shredded. When the rains come, when the floods come, whatever, it cannot be shredded down. But a foolish man is going to listen to Jesus. He's not even going to heed it at all. He's going to block it out of his mind. He's not going to do the words of Christ here. And great will be the fall of his house. So Jesus gets to the end of his great sermon and says, either you're going to be wise and you're going to, be, you're going to listen to my words or you are going to be a fool and you are not going to do them and great is going to be the fall of your house. Look finally at verse 28 and 29. Jesus has finished his sermon. He has left his disciples or the crowds here with one choice. But look at their response in verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their own scribes. So Jesus finishes this incredible sermon and the crowds are astonished. They're Standing there marveling, they're amazed at the teaching that Jesus teaches and the authority by which he teaches. But he still has left them with a clear choice. There's no gray area in Jesus' teaching here. There's no lack of clarity. Jesus has left his listeners with a very clear decision to make. There are two gates. There are two trees. There are two claims or two kinds of disciples And there are two foundations, yet one choice to make. So be very wise in what you choose. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We do pray that you'll add your blessing to the preaching of it. Lord, we look at this Sermon on the Mount and we see how how far we all fall. Constantly sinning. Constantly making bachelor's constantly failing in so many areas even of which you have taught us in these words and Lord I pray that you'll forgive us that by your strength you will enable us to live as imitators of God Lord we do pray that again you will add your blessing to the reading and preaching of your word that has occurred this morning we pray this all in Christ's name